offering? I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus
thank you for your presence in this place this morning. We thank you that you're alive. You're not made of wood or stone, and, but you have eyes to see and you have ears to hear, and you move towards us as we take steps towards you. So we just ask for more. Come, Lord, more. Show us more of yourself. Reveal who you are to us, we pray this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a seat, guys. So I have a, a couple things I want to say this morning. Um, you guys are all aware probably of what's going on in the news. And just it's not just the news. You know, I think sometimes when we say what's going on in the news, we separate it from ourselves. But really, it's our country. It's our, it's our lives. Um, all of this is affecting these shootings and stuff. And so um, Mike and Carly Stender, they're a part of our family. They also work with InterVarsity at Grand Valley. It's just been something that's heavy on their hearts. And they're going to lead a prayer vigil tonight uh, from 6 to 7 o'clock here. So if, if your heart has been burdened and you want to join with other people who, who, whose hearts have been torn the same way and just pray for our nation, pray for the communities and the families that are being affected um, be here at six o'clock. Again, the upper room is the, it's upstairs. It's this room that's right back there. Um, the other thing is, is that, uh, a good friend of mine, his name's Max Garter. He's a youth pastor here. Uh, we've been best friends for 10 years. You know, we're each other's best men and each other's weddings and stuff. And, uh, he is leading right now. He's been doing so much this summer with the students. And right now he's, he's doing this week long missions trip here in Grand Rapids. And the first three days of that, they go out to Lake Michigan and camp and it's run by the B shop. It's called immersion. And right now there's like 27 students and Max and five other leaders out there camping uh, just looking for God and trying to create a uh, connection with each other. You know how high school can be, and it's really easy to put up walls and guards, but um, I want to, just for my friend and his ministry and for our community, some of those kids are your students and your children, so I want to pray for them. So can we just take a minute and, and pray? Pray for our nation and pray for Max and the youth right now. They have an opportunity to really experience God, and I don't know about you, but I wish that uh, when I was in high school, I had the opportunities that these kids have to really know the Lord and meet the Lord. So maybe if uh, one or two of you could pray out loud, uh, and then I'll pray for Dan before he comes up to preach. Sound good? All right. Ooh. It's going to be a loud one. Good morning, my friends. At this time of the service, I'd like to invite you to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ with me and also to reflect on the character and the wisdom of God as he's chosen to reveal himself through his scriptures. If you're new here as a community, we have been um, studying the ninth and 10th books of the Bible called 1st and 2nd Samuel this summer. We have finished uh, 1 Samuel, and we're in between 2 Samuel and 1 Samuel. What we've learned so far are uh, primarily all the lessons are wrapped up into this big theme. What's a king? It's been all about a king. The, the story that we've been reading is of ancient Israel and their first kings. The first king that uh, we're introduced to, his name is Saul. 
And Saul portrays for us a life that is lived, um, the heart, uh, if you will, of the fickle selfishness of man. And what happens when that heart becomes king? What happens to our lives when uh, selfishness rules and how that affects the people that are around us? We've also seen another man. His name is David. He is a shepherd. He's a poet, a struggling musician, trying to play gigs wherever he could here and there in uh, Israel. And uh, what he portrays for us is similar to Saul, a flawed individual, a person that does make mistakes, but a man who's humble and willing to go to God and ask for forgiveness. It's a big difference between the two. He is, he is able to uh, turn to the Lord and repent for what he has done. And this is portraying for us a man who is after God, who's chasing after God, who's, who's centered on uh, knowing God. And that's a huge difference. What I like about studying the life of, of King David is uh, that we also get the opportunity to see inside of his process, his emotions through all this, through the Psalms. So today I want to open up the book of Psalms yet again with you and uh, turn your eyes to Psalm 2, the second psalm. This psalm is about a king. It is believed to have been part of the liturgy of the coronation of a king. I really like that because this morning I want to have a mini coronation. And give the opportunity for each of us to evaluate who is on the throne in our heart. And who is wearing the crown in our life. And to really think, maybe today, to put the crown back where it belongs on on the head of Jesus. See, this psalm is about King David. In a way, it's about all the kings of Israel. But ultimately, we believe that this psalm is what we call messianic. It's, an, it's a prophetic prayer, longing for something ultimate and beyond the, the, the physical king that wrote it. It's a, a desire for God's king, and it, and it shows up in this, and we can see that. So the stance that I'm going to come at this psalm from is, is that it's ultimately about Jesus. So imagine the king you know, at this coronation service and everybody's there and pledging their loyalty to this king and celebrating this new season. And as the crown is placed on his head, this song is sung and, it is, uh, it, and it's prayed through to bring expectation and hope, to bring uh, guidance for what a good king is. Psalm 2, the psalm of the king. If you're able to stand with me for the reading of God's word, please stand. Psalm 2. Why do the nations conspire and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth take their stand and rulers uh, gather together against the Lord and against his anointed And they say, let us break off their chains and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs and belittles them. And then rebukes them in anger and terrifies them in wrath, saying, I have installed my king on Zion, my holy hill. 
I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son. Today I have become your father. Ask me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with the iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry and destroy you in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. It's the very words of God. So the way I want to do this this morning is share on the first six verses and then make some space for us to pray and contemplate. And then uh, we'll enter back into the second six verses, okay? Many of you probably don't know this, but my dad is the biggest Star Trek fan that I've ever met in my life. Born on the eighth day from the tribe of James T. Kirk. He's a Trekkie of Trekkies. To the law, he's a Vulcan. If you go into their house, you know, there's, there's, there's memorabilia in his study. There's spaceships that he's made by hand and plates with the graven images of the king and crew on the wall and books and whatnot. Literally, when I watch the Priceline negotiator commercials and see William Shatner. I can't tell if it's my dad or William Shatner because, you know, he kind of acts like him. It's just, it's, it's eerie. I remember as a child, he, he would always bring me to the movie event of the story of the Star Trek, you know. He even called me last week and said, you know, there's a new Star Trek coming out. I'm coming down to Grand Rapids. We're going to watch it together in the, in the IMAX, you know. Or it's like, okay. I don't care. I like all the movies. I'll go with you, you know. I mean, okay, this is father-son time. So one time we went to the Star Trek story, and I remember the villain was this big, like, square spaceship that had um, these, like, robot people in it. And they all kind of said the same thing. It's called the Borg, right? What did they say? Resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. Yeah, does anybody remember that? Resistance is futile. I, uh, I never forgot that line. Resistance is futile. I, I, it was just, that's so scary to me to have that kind of uh, champion by the villain. You know, it's, it's, it's very confident. When I read Psalm 2, I feel a similar vibe of confidence. Why do the nations conspire and the people's plot in vain? Resistance is futile. Where do you get that kind of confidence? I mean, where, how do you get to a place where you look out into the nations and the kings and rulers and the people who are brilliant and have power and privilege and, and have all kinds of resources and say, you know what you're doing, I hate to tell you this, but... Is pointless. I'd like to find a place in my faith and within my religion where I can come to that place of confidence. Because when I look out at the world and I see things that are going on in our country and things that are going on on the globe, oftentimes it's not from a place of confidence that I evaluate that. It becomes a place of great fear. 
So consider these thoughts about uh, what's going on here in the psalm. Notice how they uh, are not saying that the plan, that every plan that the nations conspire and every plan that the people's plot is in vain. Imagine if it was. Imagine if it was to say, oh, nations, why do you plot uh, about inflicting pain on one another? Why do, you, why do you conspire about acts of terrorism when it's in vain? We wouldn't be able to read this. We'd say it's not. They're, they're doing it all the time. How can that be? It's not all of the plans that they conspire or, or that they plot. It's, it's one specific plan. Verse 2 and 3 shows us the, na- the kings of the earth take their stands and the rulers band together against the Lord and against his Messiah. And they say, let us break off their chains and let us throw off their shackles. Whose handcuffs are these anyways? So their plan is based on the assumption that following the rule of God's king and following after God leads to oppression. It's very important for us to consider their plan because it's, it's very tempting to believe this. And maybe even some of you this morning are here and you've been living in this place for a while that your relationship with God feels more like prison than freedom. Feels more like oppression. You know, maybe it started off with a conversation by a coworker or somebody and a, a condescending remark came out that says, oh, you're a Christian Well, I guess that means you never have fun. Maybe it turned into something a little bit more confrontational by somebody saying, you know, I I just don't get you Christians. You just pick and choose the things that you want to believe in, and then you just sort of are so hypocritical and narrow-minded. I mean, surely our consciousness has evolved since the time of this old ancient book that was written in the Middle East. I mean, it's kind of presumptuous for you to think that your way is the only way. Come on, open up a little bit. Throw off the shackles that are around you. There's more to this world than what you believe. Be careful to listen to anyone's voice that tells you that serving God is oppression. This is a lie and it's evil and it's been being told for, uh, since the Garden of Eden. Remember that crafty serpent, what he said to the woman at the tree. Did God really say that you should not eat of that fruit? That's ridiculous. You can eat, you're not going to die. Why would he make fruit for you that would kill you? You can eat that. I mean, come on. It's a little narrow-minded to really believe that he meant that literally. Perhaps there was some sort of mistranslation between what Adam told you and what God told him. Come on, Eve. Consider the context. It's totally different. You weren't around back then. And now you're here. Times are changing. Come on, let's go with the time. Take the fruit. As a matter of fact, if you eat that fruit, you'll become like God. His his command to you is holding you back. He's oppressing what you could be. Throw off the shackles. Uncuff yourself. Take the fruit. Does anybody feel this about the, uh, about the family of God? This is not true. 
the truth is very clear in the scriptures that where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. Nowhere else outside of God, God's family is there freedom. Everywhere else is bondage. That lie that comes to you and says you would, be, have, you would have so much more pleasure if you would just uh, walk outside of your marriage and do whatever you want. Oh, unhook yourself from the ball and chain. Throw off the fetters. You go out and do whatever you want. You'll be more happy there. No, it's, more, it's bondage. It's slavery. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 1 says what? You have been set free. Not to become a slave again. It's for freedom that you have been set free. The family of God is not merely about rules. The family of God is not simply legalism. Liberty is found only in Jesus, not f- from a part of Jesus. We have no reason to seek uh, to be a part, uh, to freedom away from him, but we have every reason to seek freedom in him. So this is the plan. Be very cautious about listening to somebody that says that God is oppressing you. God finds this actually kind of funny. If uh, you see verse 4, the one enthroned in heaven laughs. laughs. This is hilarious to think that by setting yourself free from him that you would be, you know, somehow better off or more free than you were before. He terrifies all of them by saying, I have installed my king on Zion. You know that there is a king and he is installed. His name is Jesus, and the crown perfectly fits his head. You might be asking yourself, what's this business about Zion? We'll have Will come back up to facilitate some time of prayer, but let me just say, every time I read the word Zion, my heart leaps. And the reason for that is, is Zion is a place, uh, is a metaphor. It represents where God is. Represents the place that he dwells. See, the story of the Bible is is that man was separated from God, but man was made to be with God. And once we get to like Moses and the Sinai part, where there's all this fire that's around them at night, and the cloud by day, and the manna from heaven, God is simply saying, this is what it's like when I am with you. He makes, he goes through great lengths to say that this is better for me to be with you. Eventually in the story, that place that is representing God's presence is Zion. Can you imagine hearing news, you know, living there in Jerusalem and hearing news that there's some sort of terrorist attack that's happened or some sort of Amorite uh, raid that's coming in and it strikes you with fear. And all you have to do is walk outside and look and see the presence of God. As a, as a message to you saying, I, I, I am with you. Here I am. Providing you with food and shelter and shade. Providing you with uh, my protection. The king is established in Zion. 
the further beauty of this uh, theme is, is that Jesus changed the location of Zion. When he sent the Holy Spirit down in Acts chapter 2, that same fire was there, but it's changed from in the temple to now in all of his people. That fire is just as meaningful as it was before, but I'm going to place it inside of you, Christian, so that when everyone else is terrified, all they have to do is look at you and see the light that's shining out of you and give glory to your Father in heaven because of what they see in you. The king is established in Zion, established in here. Jesus even said it himself, when my kingdom comes, it's not through visible signs. And people will say, here it is or there it is. When my kingdom comes, it will be within you. This is what St. Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 6 when he says, don't you know you are the temple of the Holy Spirit? That God is placed inside of you. So let's evaluate our hearts and lives this morning for a moment and think, do I need to repent of believing for one minute that being inside of the family of God is like being an oppression? Do I need to uh, renounce that feeling of obeying God as some sort of shackle over me? It's a lie. There's freedom here. I need to receive the freedom that Jesus paid for with his life. Our king traded his crown of uh, gold for a diadem of thorns so that we could be free. So that he could say to us, I would do anything for you to be free. Jesus. We need to consider also how we view the world and how we look at uh, the plots against our family. And the fear that we allow to live in our hearts and lives and say, Jesus, come and uh, show me your presence in, in, in my life. Psalm would call a moment like this, they'd say, uh, Selah.
of the Lord and said to me, you are my son. Today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance, the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery. I I shared a few weeks ago on the death of Saul. You may remember, you may not, but there was one of the services that I I was trying to remember a Bible verse, and I couldn't remember how it went, and I couldn't fake it because it's one of those really important John 3.16 type ones, you know, and everybody started helping me out, and it was kind of a fiasco. Afterwards, someone came up to me, uh, that whom I love, they put their arm around me and said, you know, we're so glad that you face-planted that verse because we, uh, you know, sometimes feel like we can't catch up to you on Scripture memory, you know, and so it's just nice to see you fail every once in a while. I'm like, I get that. I mean, I don't want people to think that I'm trying to be better than you. Uh, There's a difference between memorizing things and knowing things by heart. And I want you to know that (laughs) it's not like I have this perfect memory. Um, (laughs) If you only knew if you only would say that to my wife sometime, that Dan has a perfect memory. It, she would laugh so hard at you. I can't remember anything. Or maybe I guess you could say, Scripture memory comes with the price. I don't know which you want to do, but I mean, literally this week I'm sitting at a restaurant waiting for someone to come meet with me, and it's like an hour goes by, and they finally call me, and they're like, where are you? And I'm like, I'm waiting for you to come to the restaurant. They're like, I'm at where we said we would be. And I go, I kind of forgot where we said we would be, so I just, I just guessed. <laughs> I told some people recently I would show you around town. They're kind of new to Grand Rapids. And then when the time came, I forgot where I said to meet them. And so I just drove around trying to think, where would I have said to meet? And I never found them. I just went home. My wife told me three times that our family dog passed away uh, uh, from my parents up north. And all three times I acted like I'd never heard this before. Like, Dan, Ginger, Ginger died, you know. And I'm like, oh, I just got the wind knocked out of me, Chelsea. And then like two days later, she's like, I wonder what they're going to do with the doghouse now that, you know, Ginger's dead. I'm like, what? <laughs> Don't tell me that. No. Ginger. She's like, I'm getting concerned, Dan. This, there's, just this Tuesday, I'm sitting at the dinner table at our kitchen, you know, doing my amount of business, and my wife's pulling dinner or food out of the freezer, and she pulls out a pair of underwear. And she looks at me and says, why is this in the freezer? And I think, I have no idea. I don't know. I, don't, I can't think. Maybe someone else. Who else could have done that, though? I can't think of a reason why. If it was any of you, just tell me, and I can sleep tonight. It's so easy to forget things, and it's sad to forget something, you know, that's really, really important. 
Something that I often forget that is so important is how big of a deal Jesus really is. But when you read verses 7 and 8, I mean, does that resonate with you of like, this is Jesus. How easy is it to forget that when God looks at him, he says, ask me anything. You want to nations? Crumple them up like a piece of paper and throw them away if you like. What do you want? Dash it and make them dance or, or do anything. I'll give it to you. Rule them. You know, we, it's easy for me to forget Colossians 1.15, the, the Jesus of the, the great Jesus of Hebrews 1, uh, chapter 1 of, of John 1, and the, the Jesus that just seems to be so amazing. It's like in church or in prayer, it's like, or reading, I, I understand that, but then when uh, I, I get on the internet or see something on the news or, or when I feel some pain, I forget how amazing and huge he really is. This psalm, and part of this psalm at least, is a call to remember who the king is. Remember how great he is. There are things that we can do that help this, and there are things that we can do to hurt this. And so consider uh, a couple of thoughts, the things that you can do to help stay in that place of remembering and honoring Jesus. And some things that you can do that will take, you, uh, take your mind off of that. Consider what it says here. Uh, be wise, you kings of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear. Rejoice with trembling. There is a balance that has to be a part of our relationship with uh, interacting with the Lord and with his purpose. And that part is, is remembering this, uh, his might and power in such a way that causes us to pause, stand in awe, to see him and, and to have some sort of fear and reverence there. I mean, if, if we didn't, Serving the Lord and doing the work of the Lord in, in our world would just be something that is uh, easy to, to throw away and easy to not believe in. You probably start to, to lose steam at, uh, in your obedience. But when we meditate and when we remember how awesome he is, we start to get the unction back uh, in, our, in our relationship again. We start to get a fire going again. When you start to consider his might how do I do that? Well, a good place to start would be the Gospels. If you start to think, Dan, I've become jaded. I've got, I, I feel like Jesus means very little to me anymore. He, he, he. Meditate and know the Gospels. Know Jesus by heart. Start to remember who he is portrayed as. And see if that starts to illuminate all that's around you and the work that he's doing in your world. The more we fill our heart and our mind that's with things and um, with news and things that's um, detached from the work of Jesus, the more we're likely to forget what he's actually doing or not be able to recognize it. Remember Jesus, who just walks on water, the thing that everybody's afraid of. Who with a word calms a storm that everybody thinks this thing is going to kill us. In a word, it, it submits to him. Who wills it and crippled people start to walk again. 
who speaks a word and peoples are healed and dead people come out of their tombs. This is Jesus. How amazing is he? When we start praying into that and believing that, we'll start to see his work around the world. He's not silent. Jesus isn't just sitting around doing nothing. He is always seeking to heal this broken place. He's always seeking restoration. And we'll start to see him and see him with that fear and see him in the light of who he is. And we'll have the unction that we need to follow him in there. If you don't serve the the Lord with fear and rejoice in him with trembling, then you're highly unlikely to suffer for him. I mean, Jesus even says it himself. Remember the words of our Lord. Fear God, who can cast you into hell, and not just, you know, man who can destroy your body. You're not going to suffer for uh, God that you, don't, that you don't know how amazing he is. The next thing that I see is kiss the son, lest he be angry with you and you perish in your way. What is to do with this kiss the son business? This is a cultural uh, way of showing affectionate loyalty. How many of you just came home from the Israel trip recently? Yep. Okay, so welcome home, my friends. Uh, Did you go to the church of the Holy Sepulchre? Was there any kissing or anything going on there? Oftentimes, even in the Middle East now, in Orthodox circles, you will see very much uh, an expression of affectionate loyalty to venerated objects. You'll see people kissing and, and, uh, and pledging themselves to, uh, to God in that way. Even in ancient times, you will see people doing this for uh, royalty or, through, or, or even for idols. We may not look exactly the same in the West, but we feel the same. There are many ways that we can express affectionate loyalty to uh, Jesus, our King, and there are many ways that we express affectionate loyalty to other things. Consider your life. How often, you know, do we come across a situation where we can, play, we can show our loyalty to Jesus by being loving and kind, but rather trade that loyalty for a loyalty to an idol or, or a false king of self-righteousness and hate that person and treat that person terribly or, or the situation. How often do we decide, you know, instead of pledging my loyalty to Jesus, our, my true king, by showing him... Uh, Uh, humility and repentance, do we say, I'm actually going to show my pride, loyalty, and commitment? I know what you're thinking. Oh, kiss the sun lest he be angry. How can Jesus be angry? Jesus gets very angry. In my studies of the Gospels, I see many times where Jesus gets really frustrated. And you would too. If you had an opportunity for people to have life, but over and over they choose death, it would make you very mad to see people that you care about choosing to pledge affectionate loyalty to some idol or false god or something that promises so much but delivers so little. When you are saying, no, 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 this way is the way to life. Jesus gets furious with religious people who say, I don't have any problems. 
and in their self-righteousness will refuse to turn to Jesus and say, I'm, I'm sorry, I am flawed, I have issues. He never gets mad at somebody that, that stands before him and says, you know me, and you know that I have problems. Now consider, next time you're faced with the opportunity to be loyal to whatever thing that's on your heart right now, whatever idol or thing that you might be uh, seeking after, and the time and the money and the love and the things that we would give to that, and say, no, kiss the sun. I'm going to be loyal to Jesus. I'm going to do the right thing here. That's pretty much all that I have to say this morning. I... um, I uh, once you consider the last line of the psalm as something that's uh, very compelling and difficult. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is a very hard thing to do. To trust a living being. You know, when we're dealing with idols, it's much more simple. One plus one equals two. That's the formula of what they're promising you. You know, I mean, if you just do this for me, I'll do this for you. But having an actual relationship with a being is much more complicated than that. With God, it's never, you're never able to just say, you know, I'm going to do this for you and you have to do this for me. It's, you have to trust him in what he promises you. Take refuge in him. Sentences that come to mind for me that characterize the feeling of trusting God. Uh, even though it's good, sometimes, you know, it feels kind of like, like nervous. You know, the, the line from the Chronicles of Narnia about Aslan that says, um, he's not safe, but he's good. This characterizes kind of the relationship of trusting in this uh, God for refuge. Um, sentences that are coming to mind are like... Uh, on the count of three, let's make a break for it. This kind of uh, sentence, you know, what does that do for you emotionally in your heart? Like, it's not just, it's not just this hollow promise. It's this, this is our hope. This is what we're betting everything on, is, is this. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's what I want to leave you with. There are other things in our culture and in our life that say, I will protect you, I will give you shelter, and I will, uh, this system or ideology or this people group or something that you, you deeply desire, I will give you refuge. But ultimately, we need to turn to Jesus for our refuge and our protection. He would do anything for you. So consider your life and the throne that's in your heart. Who's on the throne when push comes to shove? When you know that you're uh, supposed to do something and you want to do something else, who wins the argument? Let's make this now a mini coronation service where we, uh, where we take the crown that doesn't really fit us quite well and place it back on the head of Jesus. Pray with me and consider this. 
crown doesn't fit on our president or our nation or our ideals. The crown doesn't fit on, on anyone except you. Does it fit on uh, my passions or pleasure or desires? It fits on you, Jesus. And so we're placing it back on you today. We're sorry and we repent for uh, taking you off the throne. We have nowhere else to go but to you. And so we just, we just come before you and lay our fear down at your feet and say, we're trusting in you for refuge. We lay our future and our family, and we say we're trusting you. We take off our pretend self-righteousness and lay it before you and say we're trusting you. We're not going to try and perform for you anymore. We're repenting for filling our minds with, uh, uh, or, or for acting and pledging allegiance to entertainment, <laughs> TV shows and things, much more than we actually pledge our allegiance and loyalty to you. Our actions are, uh, are going to start turning towards you, Jesus. So come and fill our hearts and minds with the wonder that you, uh, that you bring so beautifully and naturally. Come fill our minds and our lives with uh, how great you are. Show us the places that in this world that are breaking your heart and how we can follow you into them um, to bring your healing and reconciliation. And show us... Uh, you know, all the places that are overwhelming us that we look at and say that'll never be healed, that'll never be fixed and, and to speak to us of your greatness and say, I can do this. <laughs> I can work with that. Our faith this morning is just taking another step towards you, Jesus. Thank you for dying for us and making it very clear to us that you would do anything for our freedom, anything for our healing and reconciliation. Thank you for giving us your fire, that your, your Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us, to guide us and convict us. Give us the courage to be able to uh, walk that out in our, our country, for our country and our city, for our family's sake.
bless you and keep you. The Lord will bless you and keep you. He will keep you. He will graciously reveal to you who he is. He's smiling at you, which brings you and your family overwhelming peace. Amen. Amen.